At first, it was just one sheep per day. But as the deadly dragon grew more powerful, he demanded more and more. Soon it was the people of Silene themselves, so intense was his insatiable hunger, his desperate desire for more and more. Until, until one day a courageous knight named George agrees to confront the dragon. After a long and bloody battle, George finally defeats the cruel beast, saves the princess, and rescues the town. With what weapon did George slay the dragon? A spear? A lance? A sword? Maybe, just maybe, the dragon was slain by love. Welcome to Slain by Love, your weekly sermon podcast from the pulpit of St. George's Episcopal Church in Austin, Texas. In the name of the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Y'all please be seated and good morning. Happy New Year. Jim O'Neill lived in England. <clears throat> Jim O'Neill was a 71-year-old pilot who lived in England. And several years ago, Jim O'Neill was up in his Cessna aircraft. It was a sunny day in England. Um, all seemed to be going well. It was a beautiful day in England. He was flying his Cessna aircraft, and I want to quote from something that I read online, quote, Jim's life was in pretty good shape. He loved to fly and he was feeling strong. And then when he was about 40 minutes into his four hour flight from Glasgow, England to Colchester, sorry, Glasgow, Scotland to Colchester, England, something happened. In an instant, his vision failed. Suddenly, he could not see a thing. At first, he thought that the sun had just momentarily blinded him, but soon he realized that it was much worse. It turned out that he had suffered a stroke, and although he felt no pain, everything was a complete blur, close quote. Can you imagine just imagine what it would be like to be all alone in that plane, sitting there at the control panel, flying 120 miles an hour, 15,000 feet in the air, and suddenly you've lost your vision. Suddenly, without warning, you are completely blind. Now, what's my point this morning about Jim O'Neill? It's this, that in that moment, when he was flying that aircraft with no vision, literally flying blind, he was 100% powerless. He was 0% in control. More and more, that's exactly how I think about power. What is power? It's control. Control of your resources, control of your health, control of your organization, control of your household, control even of your own body. And in that moment, this unexpectedly and suddenly blind pilot, Jim O'Neill, he was completely powerless. He had no control over his vision. 
No control over his body, no control over the situation. He was completely powerless to navigate that Cessna aircraft to safety. See, control equals power. And that, dear friends, that is what I want to talk to you all about just for a few minutes this morning. Now, we hear a lot about power in the psalm this morning. Don't know if you caught it. Psalm 29 this morning, we hear a lot about power this morning. This talk about the voice of the Lord. The voice of the Lord is a powerful voice. Verse 4, it breaks the cedar trees and shakes the wilderness. That's the psalm. That's the psalm. But this theme of power, it's not just in the psalm. We see it directly. We're confronted by it directly in today's gospel from Mark 1. And as we, as we begin our journey this year in 2024, dear friends, as we begin our journey in the gospel of Mark, I want you to know we are hearing about power. What do we find in Mark 1? We find a story about power. In Mark 1, we have three things. Now, I normally do not preach three point sermons, but I'm doing it today. I don't know why. We have three things in Mark 1. We have an audience, we have a setting, and we have a character. An audience, a setting, and a character. And guess what? Each of them is about power. Power and its opposite, powerlessness. First, the audience. In Mark 1, we read this. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, verse 4. Now, there's a lot there in that little verse that needs unpacking, but what I want to do with you this morning is ask you a very simple question. Who is the audience? As John makes this proclamation there on the banks of the River Jordan in the wilderness, who is he talking to? I read an interesting article online this last week on poverty in first century Palestine. It reminded me of the brutal conditions of the Roman Empire. It reminded me of the brutal conditions that the people in John and Jesus' day were facing. The Roman Empire had a vested interest in keeping people down. The Roman Empire had a vested interest in keeping the Jewish people poor and oppressed. According to this article, about 90%, about 90% of the people in question were, uh, were subsistence workers who toiled the land. These people had no means, no opportunity, no property, no rights. They had no power. They were not unlike the folks that some of us hung out with last night at Casa Marianella those refugees from brutal nations in South America, in the Middle East, in Asia, like those refugees, the people out there by the Jordan River in our story this morning, they were utterly powerless. Or you could put it like this, just like the quarter million immigrants who crossed the U.S.-Mexico border last year in 2023, just like them, the members of John's audience were utterly powerless, had an utter lack of control. That, dear friends, that is John's audience. 
the weak, the powerless, the desperate. I wonder if there's, if there's anyone here who feels like that. I wonder if there's anyone here who can relate to weakness, to powerlessness, to desperation. We will come back to this audience, this audience of weakness and powerlessness. We're going to come back to this audience over and over in 2024 as we camp out in Mark's gospel together. But this is John the Baptizer's audience this morning, the weak, the powerless, the desperate, those with an utter lack of control in their lives. Jesus quietly looks out over this great throng of weak ones. He sees their hunger. They're on the banks of the River Jordan. Jesus looks out upon them, and he sees their hunger. He sees their need. And what does he do? He wades in. He wades in to join them, to meet them, and to stand with them in their weakness in the River Jordan. And friends, this brings me to my setting, not just the audience, but secondly, the setting of Mark. And there's a lot that we could talk about here in terms of the setting of this story in Mark chapter 1. There's the Judean countryside in verse 5. There's the nearby city of Jerusalem in verse 5. There's the wilderness in verse 4. But what I want to talk to you all about this morning is a different aspect of the setting. I want to talk to you about the river. Jesus wades in to join them, to meet them in their weakness in the Jordan River. Now, some of y'all, by now, have heard Bokeh's story. Some of you by now have heard Bokeh's story about how in 2006 she almost drowned in the Shenandoah River or a branch of the Shenandoah River when she was pregnant with our second child, how my wife flipped over the side of the raft in the fiercest part of those white water rapids. She flipped over the side of the raft at the, at the worst part of the rapids, how she almost drowned, how her adrenaline kicked in, and how she somehow managed to survive. Now that was a river, a river of danger, a river of fear, a river of struggle. Question for you this morning, and this is my main question for today, question for you this morning. When Jesus interacts with struggling people, what does he do? When Jesus rubs up against folks who are struggling with debt, with cancer, with loneliness, with depression, what does he do? When Jesus is confronted with the misery, the sorrow, the pain in the lives of others, others whom he loves, what does he do? When people are being tossed around in the violent rapids of life, getting bruised and scraped by the rocks, what does Jesus do? When people begin to drown in the floods of life, and in our psalm this morning we hear a lot about the deep floods of life, what does Jesus do? Think about that pilot, Jim O'Neill. If Jesus were there with him in that cockpit, what would he do? Well, in the gospel stories of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what 
does Jesus do? Does he make it all better? Does he make it all go away? Well, sometimes, yes. Sometimes, yes, he does. Every once in a while, yes, Jesus does take the pain away. Every once in a while, he does relieve the suffering. He does bring healing. He does fill bellies and cure sickness. Yes, he does this. He does all of this. Every once in a while. In Mark's gospel, he does it about 10 times. But only 10. Only every once in a while. And I think of those healings, those miracles, I think of them as little tastes, little whiffs, little samples, little tastes of, the, of, of heaven. Those miracles, those healings are little tastes of the way things are supposed to be. They're little tastes of how things one day will be in the new heavens and the new earth, in the kingdom of God. A healing here, a miracle there. It's kind of like they're one-off, you know what I mean? A healing there, a miracle there. Meanwhile, the brutal Roman Empire keeps on rolling with its systems of brutal injustice. See, these one-off miracles, at least in Mark's gospel, they are not the primary way that Jesus ministers to folks in their weakness. They are not the primary way that he deals with suffering and pain. No. The main way, the fundamental way that Jesus ministers to folks in the river of life, in the midst of their suffering, the main way, do you know what it is? What do you think? He joins them. He joins them in it. He joins them in the pain, in the suffering. He wades into the river of life. He gets down in it. And I'm slightly embarrassed right now, but I do admit that I'm, I have a Nine Inch Nails song in my head, down in it. <laughs> Jesus gets down in it into our suffering, into the river of life, and he joins them there. He joins us there. He enters into our suffering. He enters into our weakness. And friends, this leads me to, yes, my third, my third little dimension of the story this morning in Mark chapter one, not just the audience, not just the setting, but thirdly, the character, the character slash hero. Not just the audience, it's an audience of weakness. Not just the setting, the river, it's a setting of weakness. But the character slash hero. Think with me about this story. Think with me about the stories, the gospel stories of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Think with me about the Jesus story. Is Jesus a hero of strength? Is Jesus a hero of power? No, Jesus is a hero of weakness. Now, why do I say that? Why on earth would I say that? Well, the first reason, 
the first reason this morning from Mark chapter 1 that I insist that Jesus is a hero of weakness. The first reason is because Jesus repented. Let me say that again. Here in Mark chapter 1, Jesus repents. Huh? Father Matt, Jesus repented? Well, he underwent John's baptism. John's baptism, which was a baptism of repentance. Matt, are you saying that Jesus sinned and needed to repent? No. But he did repent. Again, he was baptized into John's baptism, which was a baptism of repentance. See, true heroes, true leaders, repent. Anyone remember what Donald Trump said when someone asked him once, Donald Trump, have you ever repented? On Saturday, July 18, 2015, Frank Lutz, L-U-N-T-Z, asked Trump whether he's ever repented and asked God for forgiveness. Trump's response, quote, I don't think so, he said. I don't bring God into the picture, I don't, close quote. So Trump has never repented, but Jesus Christ has. When did Jesus repent? In the waters of baptism. In John's baptism of repentance. Does this mean that Jesus sinned? I asked, yes, for a third time. No, not exactly. I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis, quote, from his book, Mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis says this, quote, only a bad person needs to repent. Only a good person can repent perfectly. The worse you are, the more you need it. The worse you are, the more you need it, and the less you can do it. The only person who could do it perfectly would be a perfect person, and he would not need it, close quote. Why did Jesus repent? Not because he needed to, but because we do. Does it take a strong man or a weak man to repent? A strong woman, a weak woman. Is repentance something that strong people do or that weak people do? Here's the answer. Repentance is the way that strong people admit their weakness. Repentance is the way that strong people admit their weakness. It takes strength to admit that you're weak. And that is exactly what we find in Jesus. That is exactly what we find in Jesus. Was he strong or weak? Was he powerful or powerless? Was Jesus strong or weak? Was he powerful or powerless? Friends, there's only one way to answer that question. There's only one way to figure that out. Look at the cross. Look at the cross. On the cross, his power was made perfect in weakness. Now, remember Jim O'Neill, the blind pilot? Well, according to the BBC, we know what happened because the BBC in England released the last four minutes of O'Neill's flight. A Royal Air Force pilot named Paul Gerard 
was contacted by air traffic controllers, and he brought his plane to within 500 feet of O'Neill's plane. Gerard began to talk to O'Neill, guiding him to the airport. Here is what he said. Jim, you've missed the runway this time. Let's start another gentle right-hand turn. Keep the right turn coming. Roll out left. No need to worry. Roll out left. Left again. Left again. Keep coming down. Turn left. Turn left. Hey, no problem. Can you see the runway now? So you can't see the runway? Keep coming down. Keep coming down. And then finally, you are safe to land. And O'Neill touched down in a near perfect landing. Friends, you might feel like you're in the river today, the river of fear, the river of loss, the river of pain. Jesus gets into the river with us. He stands there with us. He stays there with us. He suffers there with us. But in baptism, today is a day about baptism. It's the feast of the baptism of our Lord, and we're going to baptize a beautiful little one this morning. And in baptism, the Holy Spirit is not just with us. The Holy Spirit is in us. The Holy Spirit gets not into the river. The Holy Spirit gets into us. God enters not simply into the river, but God enters into us. In baptism, God enters our hearts our minds, our deepest parts, our deepest selves, like a still, small voice. A still, small voice, not unlike that of Paul Gerard. This co-pilot, the Holy Spirit, speaks to each of us. Eli, you've missed the runway this time. Herb, let's start another gentle right turn. Keep the right turn coming, roll out left. Kim, no need to worry. Roll out left, left again, left again. Keep coming down, turn left, turn. Hey, no problem. Spencer, can you see the runway now? So you can't see the runway? Keep coming down. And then finally, to Eli, to Herb, to Kim, to Spencer, to Father Matt, to everyone in this room, finally, you are safe to land. In the name of the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for joining us at the pulpit of St. George's Austin, where the love of God in Christ slays our enemies, our fears, our guilt, our worries. How are they slain? Only by love. Special thanks to the good folks of St. George's and especially to that masterful media guru, Liam Dolan Henderson. See you next week. Peace and be well.